Interested in investing but don't know where to begin? A great place to start is Bank of Ireland's new webinar series, Invested. You can learn about investing with live webinars, guides and insights from industry experts. We know you've worked hard for your money and with our expert support, it can work harder for you. So don't rest it, invest it. Visit bankofireland.com invested. Bank of Ireland, begin. Terms and conditions apply. Bank of Ireland is a tied agent of New Ireland Assurance Company PLC trading as Bank of Ireland Life for Life Assurance and Pensions Business. Members of Bank of Ireland Group. Bank of Ireland Trading as Bank of Ireland Insurance and Investments is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Future Proof podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science.newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter at Newstalk Science. We can text us for 30 cent 53106. We get to all of your comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. Coming up on this week's programme, did you know there was something before the Big Bang? What we know and how we know it with Will Kinney. Before we start, though, we heard that one of our longtime listeners who's been with us for quite some time, Audrey Byrne, has been unwell. Audrey, just to say, we all hope that you recover as quickly as possible. That's from everyone on the Future Proof team. Now, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Lara Duncan. You're both very welcome. Ruth, our first story has to do with hearing. And Ruth, I'm one of those people who absolutely destroyed his hearing by listening to music that I love far too loud, despite the advice of my parents for many years. Um, this is something that I've been waiting for. I know. And Jonathan, you're not alone. It's been estimated that about one in 12 people in Ireland will acquire a permanent hearing loss. And and like you, a lot of that is because people are listening to things that are too loud. But it can also happen because people are taking particular medications. And of course, with aging, people tend to get hear loss. Um, So to sort of understand this research, it's good to just sort of think about how we hear. So sound waves come into our ear on the outside of our head. Our eardrum vibrates and those sound waves travel travel through three little bones in the ear to your cochlea and your cochlea is an organ sort of a spiral shaped organ that looks a bit like a curled up snail and inside your cochlea there's special cells that have hairs on them and there's two different kinds of hairs there's outer hair cells and they they amplify low levels of noise to increase the signal and then there's inner hair cells and those are the cells that transmit the sound waves to your brain along the auditory nerve and most hearing loss is because of those outer hair cells dying. Uh, and, and what scientists in Northwestern University have done by looking at the developmental pathway of the ear in mice, they've actually identified a single master gene, which they call TBX2, which when it toggles these ear hair cells to either be an outer or an inner hair cell. Um, so when the gene is turned on, a cell becomes an inner hair cell in the ear. And when the gene is blocked, the cell becomes an outer hair cell. And that's very interesting because today scientists can produce an artificial cochlea hair cell, but they don't, they never knew how to differentiate it into, into the inner or the outer type. So this represents a major step in terms of possibly coming up with a way to get your ear to produce new cells. And, and, and of course, we don't produce them naturally. All of the these hair cells we get at birth. So that's the problem. That's why hearing loss is so difficult to fix. 
And and so this is opening the door for potential um, therapy to to stimulate regrowth of the cells that up until now I thought were dead forever. Well, probably not the cells that are dead, but actually the cells that are sitting in between them, the lattice cells in your cochlea. So the idea is to use a cocktail of genes. So there's two genes which make a sort of non-hair cell into a hair cell. And then now the, the magic ingredient of TBX2 to make sure that you get the outer hair cell. So it is, it's, it's, it's a long way off. It's in mice at its early stage, but it's a really important discovery on the pathway to, to maybe being able to fix people's hearing. Look, I'll take it. I'm very excited about the potential for this. Um, Lara, our second story has to do with cancer. Absolutely. Um, actually, to be honest, I have rarely been as excited um, about a paper as I am about this one. When you actually sent this through to me, Jonathan, I had never heard of this before. So I've spent a long time looking into it since you sent this. And it's absolutely fascinating. Um, what it is, is based around an entirely new way to treat cancer. And I mean entirely new, um, which is something that you rarely say. Um, it's actually been developed by um, scientists in the University of Michigan, and they started back in 2001. And this method, which is called histotripsy, is actually even in clinical trials in humans at the moment, Em, and the results are still pending. What it is, is they use an ultrasound machine to do very, very targeted therapy. And the ultrasound essentially beams the waves in and in a very, very tiny, unbelievably targeted to micromillimeter section it can kill the tumor. So it causes it to basically get an air bubble inside. That little air bubble then cavitates, which kills the cells around it. Um, and, and obviously then if the cells are dead, then the other cells in and around them start to become uh, targets of the immune system. And the immune system penetrates into that area um, and, and the cancer cells are being killed. And it's absolutely fascinating. They did this research in mice and they gave them hepatocellular carcinoma, which is one of the top 10 killers um, in terms of cancer in humans. And they used this this histotripsy, which is where they use the sound to kill the cancer. They didn't kill the whole um, tumor. They killed somewhere between 50 and 75 percent of the tumor mass. But in more than 80% of the mice, the rest of the tumour died off, most likely because of immune infiltration targeting the, the cancer itself. And over 80% of these mice um, never had any metastases either, which is distant spread of the cancer. So it's, it's not invasive. Um, it's not heat therapy. It's not radiotherapy. It's not chemotherapy. There are obviously potential side effects as there are with anything, but these are minimal. And this is... I just find this absolutely fascinating. So I'm really eager to see what happens in the human trials. So to eliminate a tumour at the moment, you need to first obviously become identify, you need to be able to identify the site. But once you do that, you're saying like cell by cell level precision and using the immune system of the body to essentially deal with the tumours. It's, it's not exactly the exact cell level, but it is to the millimetre in terms of how completely accurate this is. It's acoustic cavitation. So the sound wave goes in, it causes a big bubble. The bubble then cavitates in, which destroys the cells around it. The cells die and then presumably the immune system then comes in. It targets those cells and then it starts to target all the rest of the tumour cells around it. It's, it's really fascinating. What is the benefit of this versus um, something more targeted like a cell therapy? for example. 
So one of the massive benefits of this is that it's non-invasive. So you don't have to cut skin. You do not have to harm a person in any way. And yes, you could say radiotherapy is non-invasive as well, but radiotherapy has so many side effects in the area around it. This is targeted, non-invasive. It's non-systemic. It's just, it's fascinating. I just can't believe I'd never even heard of it. I'm really, I'm so excited about this and I'm going to be researching it now for many weeks to come. Thanks a minute, Laura. Um, Ruth, our third story has to do with uh, a transfer and this time uh, not a a transfer of a lung or a transfer of a microbiome, but a transfer of brain fluid. What's going on? Yeah, I know. And last week we were talking about transferring poo from young mice to old mice in in sort of the the search of the fountain of eternal youth. And you're right, this week we are talking about cerebrospinal fluid. And I have to say there is something about all these studies. You'll have a better cultural reference, but it's slightly zombie like this idea of sucking from the young and giving to the old so they stay young. Um, That's vampires. it's about maybe vampires is the right analogy, but um, <laughs> there, there'd been a fair bit of work. So yes, fecal transplants, we saw some effects. And in, in a lab in Stanford, they had looked at blood, actually transferring blood from young mice to old mice and actually transferring the benefits of exercise through blood from, from young to old. So it's a really fascinating area. But a, a young neuroscientist called Tal Iram decided that she would like to look at cerebrospinal fluid. And and I think a lot of people told her she was crazy because this is technically incredibly challenging, particularly in mice. Uh, You know, this is the fluid that's in our spinal cord and and all around our brain. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's turned over in the body many times during the day. So even accessing accurate samples of it is difficult and getting it out of tiny mice is almost impossible. But she persevered and she developed a technique over a year that enabled her to make a little cut in the back of the neck of a 10-week-old mice and extract about a fifth of a drop of cerebrospinal fluid. And she did that on hundreds of mice until she had enough that she could create little pumps and put them on the back of older mice, drill a little hole in their skull and enable this young cerebrospinal fluid to be slowly infused into their brain. And these mice had been trained on a memory test. And and for them, this test was if a bright light and a high pitched buzz floods your cave, you're about to get an electric shock. So you should you should freeze or jump out of the way. So that was the test that they had been trained on previously. And what they found is a few weeks after the infusion of the young cerebrospinal fluid, the mice that had had the non placebo could remember far more effectively this test that they've been trained on and their memory seemed to have improved. I mean, that's, I mean, the the methodology of this experiment is out there um, and, and I'm sure some listeners may have an issue with, with, with how, it, how it's designed. But what it tells us, I suppose, is that young um, fluid from, from the spine has a certain quality that degrades presumably over time and, and doesn't allow cognitive functions to perform as well. Is that surprising? Well, it's not surprising. And they looked into it even further. I mean, you're right. Look, who wouldn't be a bit more jumpy if you had a pump attached to your brain? So so that initial test seems seems a little bit um, out there, as you say. But in fact, they looked into the hippocampus, the part of the brain that's responsible for memory. And they found about 270 genes whose expression had changed in the older mice when they were treated with this fluid. And, and they actually found a big change in a type of cell called an oligodendrocyte. And what those cells do is produce myelin. And that's 
that's a fatty substance that coats your nerve like an electrical cable being insulated and if those nerves are well insulated they're going to perform better and in fact they found a growth factor fibroblast growth factor 17 uh, which was the component of this fluid which seems to which seemed to be improving the insulation of the nerves which we know is associated with good memory and in fact they found just using that protein on its own and infusing it into the spinal fluid had similar beneficial effects so they, they actually did a huge amount of detailed work to tease out what was going on after that initial observational study Really interesting stuff. Uh, Lara, our final story has to do with calorie restrictions. Yeah, this is a new paper that was um, just published in Science from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Um, and calorie restriction, as we've talked about an awful lot, has been um, lauded as a potential way to increase lifespan. Um, and this is quite simple research. And I will explain it quite simply. What they did was they restricted calories by 30% for a group of mice. So they ate 30% less than what was your average amount. So not about overeating, but your average amount. And when they restricted their calories throughout the day, then the mice lived 10% longer. When they restricted them specifically during their very active period, which for mice is nighttime, they lived 35% longer. And this is actually massive. The average age, age span in Ireland for humans is 82. So this would be like us living to an average of 111, an average. So it's quite massive. And it's just down to the time of day that these animals were actually allowed to eat. This is something that we're going to explore a bit further in the program. So I'm not going to ask you too much about it. But is there anything for us to take from that in terms of giving us longer lives? I tell you what the researchers themselves have done is they eat only in a 12 hour period. So they've restricted themselves from, say, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. because that's when we're metabolically most active. So you could follow what they do. Maybe the research isn't there yet for humans, but that's what they are doing. Dr. Lara Dungan and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thanks very much. Good stories this week. All right. On the way, what happened before the Big Bang? Now, if you ask most people how the universe began, well, firstly, they might just refuse to engage in the conversation, just walk away. That has happened to be more than one occasion. But if they do answer, they might say something like the Big Bang. But what does that mean? And it's hard to be satisfied with that simplistic answer and to resist the temptation to simply ask, what happened before that? Well, what happened before that is precisely the question of our next guest. He's trying to answer it in his new book. It's called Infinity of Worlds, Cosmic Inflation and the Beginning of the Universe. Will Kinney is a professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Buffalo. He joins me now. Uh, Will, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought the Big Bang Bang was the beginning. I thought the beginning was the Big Bang and there was nothing before it. So I'm a bit confused. How is there something before the Big Bang? Well... The Big Bang is sort of our standard picture of the evolution of the early universe, uh, in which it started from a very hot, dense initial state and gradually expanded and cooled. But there are a number of questions that that standard theory doesn't really answer. Basic questions like, why is the universe so big and why is it so old? And how come the geometry of the universe is so close to being exactly flat? Um, So there's no curvature to the space. So uh, in response to these sort of open questions in the standard Big Bang cosmology, theorists, uh, in particular Alan Guth about 40 years ago, proposed uh, a a modification to the theory known as cosmic inflation. And the idea is that this is a period of expansion, very rapid expansion in the early universe that in a very real sense happened before the beginning of the Big Bang itself. So it takes 
uh, what in the standard theory is called a singularity, a point at which everything goes to infinity and the laws of physics break down, it replaces that initial singularity in the standard Big Bang theory with uh, an earlier period of expansion, which is very, very different from the conditions that we see in the, uh, in the early universe in the Big Bang theory. So it, our early universe was very hot and very dense, gradually expanded and cooled. This period of inflation before that initial hot, dense state would have been very cold, empty of everything except the energy of empty space, and expanding exponentially quickly. So, uh, and this, this sets up the initial conditions for the, big, the universe that we see. Later on, so so the Big Bang still happens, but but before that, there is rapid expansion and a very cold universe. That's correct. So the temperature of the universe would have been nearly at absolute zero, and it would have been empty of everything. The the exponential expansion, any pre-existing matter in the universe, is diluted away incredibly quickly, and you're left with nothing but. Uh, energy of the empty space itself that is driving the expansion. So it's a very different picture of the early universe than uh, the, the standard hot initial state. That hot initial state still happens, but it happens at the end of this inflationary period, and the energy that is present in the vacuum, in the empty space, actually decays to form all the particles of, uh, of matter and uh, atoms and quarks and gluons and so on that we have in the standard model of particle physics. Okay, so but, this... Um... This Big Bang was this hot explosion where everything just flies out um, of nothingness, essentially. But what the cosmic inflation theory says is there, there was something. There was an expansion period before the Big Bang. How, how does that work? How, does, how, how, does, how do you have an inflationary period and then a nothingness and then an explosion? Well, one of the common misconceptions about the Big Bang is that it's like an explosion, that it's like some sort of You can see why bang. people might think that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and, but the actual, uh, uh, a more accurate way to think of it is that the, the moment of the Big Bang itself is not a place in space where an explosion happened, but it's a moment in time in which an infinitely large universe comes into existence all at once. And this boundary in time in the standard theory is uh, a point at which all of our laws of physics break down. Yeah, Inflation replaces that moment, uh, that singularity uh, where the, the, our, our known laws of physics break down and replaces it with an earlier epoch that uh, is very different in character. So, uh, sort of so a, it's a, not a replacing the Big Bang model so much as it is augmenting it. It's extending it in a way that explains things that w- would otherwise remain unexplained. So if we have something very close to a singularity of the Big Bang, mm-hmm. how can we see past that? How, how can we know that cosmic inflation happened before it? Well, a remarkable thing about inflation is that when you postulate this earlier period, which explains, for example, why the universe gets so big because of this very fast expansion. And it also drives space, any curvature in the space to zero. So it explains why the universe is flat as well. You get something else for free, which is when you add quantum mechanics in, quantum effects actually generate tiny little fluctuations in the density of the space itself. 
And those fluctuations persist into the later universe. And these are, in fact, the seeds that form all the structure in the universe, all the galaxies, clusters of galaxies, planets, people, everything, all of that clumpy structure that we see in the universe today had its origin as little tiny quantum mechanical fluctuations during this inflationary epoch. So this is a theory you can actually test because you can see the results of it. It, it persists into the present universe, and it is the source of all structure in the universe. So inflation also explains where uh, the initial little fluctuations in the density of the universe that collapse to form galaxies and so on. It explains where they came from, and it makes very specific predictions about their form. So it's a highly testable theory. And in fact, modern co precision cosmology has tested many of these predictions, and uh, they've turned out to be right. I mean, it's, it's a highly predictive theory, and it was very successful in, uh, uh, when it was finally tested against the data in the last 20 years. But um, when we try to rewind the Big Bang to, to estimate the, the birth of the universe, um, when we did that, did, did the data then not suggest that the, the universe began 13 and a half billion years ago or whatever? Do we now think that there was a, a period before that? And how long? Are we talking seconds? Are we talking trillions of years? Are we talking time did not exist before then. What, when we talk about before the Big Bang, what are we talking about in terms of time? Well, our universe, the, the one we live in, came into being 13.8 billion years ago. And we can measure that really accurately now to within um, uncertainty of about 200 million years, which is a remarkable thing when you think about it, that we can measure the age of the universe that yeah. accurately. But in the inflationary picture, that moment 13.8 billion years ago would have been the end of the inflationary expansion, which could have gone on for a very an arbitrarily long time before that. So in the inflationary picture, in fact, not only can the universe be vastly older, the universe as a whole be vastly older than that 13.8 billion year age of our local piece of it. But in fact, when you calculate the consequences of this inflationary expansion, you find that our universe is just one of many others that inflation generically predicts a, a process called eternal self-reproduction in which multiple universes are being uh, created one after another uh, in, uh, in sort of an infinite array so that our universe, our local universe, our 13.8 billion year old piece of this larger structure is just one of many, many others that are constantly being produced in this inflationary expansion. And people say that the Marvel movies teach you nothing, but um, this is certainly is something that, that they delve into, this idea of multiple universes, which of course allows for a lot of those sort of sci-fi ideas of, of what, what could be in those universes and if they're infinite, what, what could contain them. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole because I've done it many times on this program. What I am going to ask you is, why can't we see them uh, these other universes, and and is, is that theoretically possible? If if as you say during this pre Big Bang expansion, uh, there were seeds that went on to create many different versions of, of of the universe, what are these cosmic horizons, and and why can't we peer past them? Well, a cosmic horizon is a boundary beyond which you can't measure anything. So an example that uh, you might be, your listeners might be more familiar with is the uh, horizon of a black hole, where once you fall into a black hole, you can never get out again. At the center of that black hole, relativity tells you that there's a singularity, but that is hidden. The interior of the black hole is hidden away from anyone who's outside of it. 
and anyone who goes inside can never get out again because it would require them to travel faster than the speed of light. The cosmos similarly has a horizon, which is a boundary beyond which we can't see, which is about a radius of about 40 billion light years. So the observable universe that we see is a finite patch of presumably a larger and perhaps infinite structure. But because of the rules of causality and relativity, we can't actually ever see outside of that. So the multiverse, if it exists, all of these other universes that are out there are fundamentally inaccessible to us. There's no way for us to actually visit them or measure their properties, which brings you to an interesting kind of conundrum, which is that this lies kind of at the gray area between what you can really consider a proper scientific concept and what you can't. And this is, of course, uh, this is a cause of a lot of controversy in, uh, in cosmology is exactly where do these boundaries lie between a truly scientific theory and, and one that's just purely speculation. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not even a huge Marvel fan, but um, in the Marvel movies, there, there is this Bifrost thing that allows Thor to travel between universes. I, I don't know why I'm bringing this in. I'm sorry. But um, is it possible, theoretically, to, for us... I mean, like, is there is there any mathematics that would allow us to open some sort of door to this theoretical other universe that exists? Not as far as we know. No, we would have to really fundamentally modify our understand our laws of physics as we understand them in order to make something like that possible. We're doing that every day. It seems. It seems like our understanding oh, of physics is never changing say never. Quite but a lot, as right. far as we know, yeah. Um, okay, so. What are the? I mean, you talked about the fact that there are um, likely multiple universes from this, but does this explanation of the the expansion of our universe, this cosmic inflation theory, does that explain why the universe is so big and how it grew so quickly, or is that is that something we're still trying to figure out? I mean, how, no, how, so how fast how fast did did it grow? Well. Basically, the, the, everything we see in our universe, our observable universe, this 40 billion year bubble that we live in, during inflation would have been about the size of, compressed into a region about the size of a grapefruit. How, do, how that, do we know that? You can work, you can work out the math. No, no, you can work <laughs> out the math. Answer. I'll just take your word for it. <laughs> and that would have expanded into a region about the size of our universe today in a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. It was truly remarkably rapid expansion. Wow. Um, so in, uh, you know, measured in, uh, measuring back from now to the Big Bang, this would have happened in about the uh, 10 to the 30th, between 10 to the 30th and 10 to the 40th seconds, right? So that would be a, a zero point followed by 35 zeros or so, give or take, and, and a one second. This is sort of the timescales that we're talking about. Extraordinarily short timescales. I guess that's what they call it, the Big Bang. But, but do we know yes. why it's so big and why it, why it was so fast? Well, inflation explains this in the sense that um, the, uh, the size of the universe, the, this expansion, it takes this tiny little bit of space and expands it to a huge size which explains all of these things, the, the, basically the size of the universe, obviously, but also the, the uh, geometric flatness and the, and the uniformity of the universe because it takes a very tiny, smooth patch and expands it out, inflates it out to this gigantic and enormous size. And this is interesting because this is a point at which uh, astrophysics meets particle physics because the theories that generate these inf this inflationary expansion, the energies are so high that the relevant physics is the kind of physics you would be testing, for example, at the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. 
So this is a, or this remarkable meeting point of inner space and outer space where you're using basically the laws of particle physics to explain the uh, overall properties of the cosmos. And it, it's a remarkable idea. I mean, if that is, if that is possible, if the, if the maths holds this to be true, how do we know that that Big Bang, as we call it, isn't happening elsewhere in the unobservable universe as we speak? In inflation, it would be. Right. Because, uh, in fact, what you find when you work out these theories is inflation never ends in a global sense. It's always going on somewhere out there. So, and like, only our universe that, is just popping up elsewhere in another dimension that we can never perceive, and that's happening yeah. all the time. An analogy I make in the book is that the, the larger multiverse that you, that you see in the inflationary picture is like a glass of beer. And the beer itself would be this exponentially expanding space. And inside that exponentially expanding space, you're nucleating little bubbles. And inside each bubble is a universe like our own. So we live inside one of these bubbles in this giant glass of beer, and the rest, of, and, but they are constantly nucleating new ones. So the, the inflationary multiverse is constantly creating new universes infinitely into the future. And so it's just constantly creating more and more and more of them like bubbles in a glass of beer. And we just happen to live inside one of those bubbles. Core blimey, as they used to say. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Um, the book is called An Infinity of Worlds, Cosmic Inflation and the Beginning of the Universe. And we've talked about this many times. I, I really like the book because it brings you up to speed at where we are now. And I know there are some people who's, who aren't fully convinced, but that, that is our current understanding. Um, if you ask most of these astrophysics, that is where we are. So this book brings you down that path of cosmic inflation and the extremely unlikely and amazing consequences of it. Will Kinney, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk. Interested in investing but don't know where to begin? A great place to start is Bank of Ireland's new webinar series, Invested. You can learn about investing with live webinars, guides, and insights from industry experts. We know you've worked hard for your money, and with our expert support, it can work harder for you. So don't rest it, invest it. Visit bankofireland.com invested. Bank of Ireland, begin. Terms and conditions apply. Bank of Ireland is a tied agent of New Ireland Assurance Company PLC trading as Bank of Ireland Life for Life Assurance and Pensions Business. Members of Bank of Ireland Group. Bank of Ireland Trading as Bank of Ireland Insurance and Investments is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.